Hello and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Benavy Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 134th episode of the Nauticast titled Ashes to Ashes, an analysis of a clash of kings, Tyrion 12, in which the acting hand of the king takes on his most frightening challenge yet dinner with his big sister, Cersei. You know, I've never been in battle, but I have had unpleasant family dinners. So really, I relate <laughs> to this Tyrion chapter most of all. I, you know, it's it's not that far apart, like being in battle and really unpleasant <laughs> family dinners. There's the lots parallels of tension. Are strong. Hmm. Yeah, you're, hmm. there's like a weird family dynamic that's going on. I, I, you know, I would take the battle over some uncomfortable family dinners that I've been in in the past. Fair, fair. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our not a small council: our hand of the king, Wolfman Sack. Grand Maester Tim Bob, troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards. Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N. Lord Travis, Master of Ships in War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas, and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, Ward of the West, Herald of the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake assisted to the Hand of the King, Ladies of Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the Eastern Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Gent, True Master of the Bainfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, and Bastard of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Dems. Haldiver, the waiter for Tiwau, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the Veneris of House Golgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Avoric, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Microm, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of Seven Kingdoms, Bunner Pates, and Maker of Drawings, who also adds yet another part to her title, the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to her title. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty of the Hor- Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Still Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Harrenhal, Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, the Knight Who Was Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lord Jean, the Splendid Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal, and Guardian of the Boneway, Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Warden of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Hedrical, Cap of the Airship, Arrogance, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, and Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard. Thank you to all of our counselors very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. 
and our spoiler warning. As we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three dunking novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Derek, a Sworn Sword patron, who asks... Hello, guys. I think you're both awesome, and I appreciate the analysis you've done, and I look forward to Feast and Dance especially. I have a question for you. Do you think Catelyn broke her vow to Brienne? I'll ask no service of you that would bring you dishonor. When she ordered her to return Jaime to King's Landing, and will this have ramifications for Lady Stoneheart? And what do you think about that, Jeff? Did Catelyn cross the line in terms of the vow she swore to never ask Brienne anything that would cause dishonor? I don't think bringing Jamie back to King's Landing was dishonorable on, on Catelyn's part. In fact, it was a noble, um, it was a noble gesture on on Catelyn's part in a desperate attempt to try and free at least Sansa from the clutches of the Lannisters. So I think that was actually honorable, an honorable order given to Brienne of Tarth, and Brienne filled it out exceptionally well despite all odds against her, to include everything from. Criminals, Bloody Mummers, Roose Bolton, and of course, the road onto King's Landing itself and the wars that have uh, ensued all around the capital of, of Westeros. So I, I think like it didn't – that Catelyn did not break her vow to Brienne itself. It was a hard order, but it was a justifiable order. I don't know if that's a, a correct distinction or not, but it's one that I make in my own head. But will this have ramifications for Lady Stoner? I think that's actually a strong possibility. I think that Brienne is going to look at Stoneheart and be like, Dude, I went through fucking hell to get Jamie back to King's Landing. And by the time I got there, Sansa Stark wasn't even present in the city itself. So why? Why did I go through all of this horror and terror and everything like that? Now, of course, part of <laughs> part of the discussion is going to be whether it's an actual discussion or not, because Stoneheart can't really speak all that well, but she remembers, of course, as uh as you know, uh which was the guy that says that from from the brotherhood was that uh uh, Lem Lemoncloak, I think, is yeah, one who's, who's kind of so. her translator. Yeah, so I I think that's going to have some major ramifications for their storyline, especially when we get Brienne's chapters, because I think she is going to be thinking explicitly about this vow and how much it cost her, and now she's being asked yet again to go against her honor and against her vows, never uh, her vows to to Jamie that she makes at the end of a storm of swords. Anyways, I've spoken enough, sir. What do you think about you? What what do you think? What do I think about me? Well, yeah, what me do you, started. please? I mean, the tricky situation here is that Brienne never swore about a Rob. She just swore about a Catelyn. And, you know, if she had sworn about a Rob, then yeah, I think Catelyn is asking something that would bring Brienne dishonor because Rob is not on board with this and Catelyn knows that Rob is not going to be on board with this. Most of Catelyn's guards, as we see with the people who accompanied her to the south, are Rob's men, right? That's naturally where Catelyn would get her men from, would be Rob, would be the Blackfish, would be Edmure. And so really they would work for them. Brienne is an exception. She comes completely out of the the, the social and political structure that, that Rob and the other men around Catelyn are used to. So I, I don't, you know, I don't know if she technically owes really anything to anyone but Catelyn. And I don't know if she's necessarily, you know, I think, I do think Catelyn is putting Brienne at risk, not only in sending her on the road, but also because if she did make it back, Rob and Edmure would not be very happy with her. <laughs> so she would not have a, a place with them. So I think you could make that argument that Catelyn has ensured Brienne continues to be a pariah. I don't know how much Brienne actually cares about that, though. So I, I think it's I think it's a gray area. I do think, though, Catelyn is not thinking about this, though. I think Catelyn is primarily concerned with get my daughters back at all costs. And I do think that reflects poorly. I think, well, I don't think Catelyn ever thinks poorly of Brienne. I, don't th I do think she thinks of Brienne as kind of an instrument of her will at the end of the day. So uh, thank you so much 
to Sir Derek for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-A-A-F, where you can get show notes, merch, access to the Nauta Slack, and bonus episodes. Yeah, speaking of that merch, I'm wearing the uh, the shirt that uh, our friend Mallory, a.k.a. St. Rixie. Let me try to move around the camera here for our folks who are tuning in the live stream. Yeah, you can almost see the sword. Anyways, it's it's a great shirt, and uh, we uh, appreciate all of your uh, support on Patreon, and you, you will get a shirt if you join us at the Sworn Sword at a higher level. And if you haven't listened to our analysis of the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven yet, it is available now for all of our poor fellow and above Patreons. It was a really fun episode. Clocks it at two hours and 49 minutes. Check it out. It's great. And we also wanted to announce that we are revising our next Patreon-only stretch goal. If you recall from last week, I brought up that our stretch goal was to do a full analysis of George R. R. Martin's The Hedge Knight if we got up to 1,250 patrons or $7,500 a month. Eh, that might have been a stretch goal too far. So we are revising our goal so that if we get to $7,000 a month, we'll do a full-out multi-part analysis of George R. R. Martin's 1998 novella The Hedge Knight. So again, check us out at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF if any of these benefits entice you. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Tyrion, he had had a very busy day getting ready for Stannis. But now he's hungry and man cannot live by work alone. Let's find out what's for dinner in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 12. Pod dressed him for his ordeal in a plush velvet tunic of Lannister Crimson and brought him his chain of office. Tyrion left it on the bedside table. His sister misliked being reminded that he was the king's hand, and he did not wish to inflame relations between them any further. You know, it's a good start to Tyrion's day when he's trying to get a bite to eat, but he has to tactically dress for the ordeal of for the ordeal of getting of eating. As Tyrion moves through the yard in the Red Keep, he runs into Varys, who in truth is running up to him. He presses a letter into Tyrion's hand, a report from the north. Good news? Uh, maybe? Tyrion unrolled the parchment. He had to squint to read the words in the torch-lit yard. Gods be good, he said softly. Both of them? I fear so, my lord. It is so sad, so grievous-sad, and them so young and innocent. Tyrion remembered how the wolves had howled when the Stark boy had fallen. Are they, wonder- are they howling now, I wonder? Have you told anyone else, he asked. Varys had not told anyone else, so Tyrion will tell Cersei the good news. He wanted to see the look on her face. Perfectly normal behavior over the deaths of children going on here, Tyrion. Wow. Tyrion thinks that Cersei looks fine at dinner, noting her green dress, matching her eyes, golden hair, bare shoulders, emerald encrusted belt. Again, perfectly normal human behavior to think that that way about your sister and how hot she looks. Tyrion hands her the letter and she reads it silently. I trust you're pleased, he said as she read. You wanted the Stark boy dead, I believe. Cersei made a sour face. It was Jamie who wanted him from that thrown from that window, not me. For love, he said, as if that would please me. It was a stupid thing to do and dangerous besides. But what did our sweet brother ever stop to think? The boy saw you, Tyrion pointed out. But Cersei thinks they could have frightened Bran to silence. But she's so very wounded that everyone thinks she's to blame whenever misfortune befalls the Starks. Hmm. Theon did this, not Cersei. Tyrion says, let's fucking hope so. Let's fucking hope that Catelyn thinks so at least, or else Jamie is dead. Cersei's eyes widen. She wouldn't kill Jamie. Why not? What would you do if Joffrey and Tommen were murdered? I still hold Sansa, the queen declared. We still hold Sansa, he corrected her. And we had best take good care of her. Now, where is this supper you've promised me, sweet sister? And then we get some... Amazing, awesome, and ridiculous food porn, which I really need to stop writing these synopses right before lunch because I was super fucking hungry when I wrote this. Needless to say, it's expensive, exquisite food, and Tyrion makes sure to only eat the dishes that Cersei eats from so as not to get his ass poisoned. 
During dinner, Cersei asks if there's news of Littlefinger from Bitterbridge. Nope, none. Cersei thinks Littlefinger would betray them for Stannis, and Tyrion's like, no way, Stannis would never purchase men, and Littlefinger would never be comfortable with Stannis. But wait, isn't Stannis purchasing sellswords and sell sales? And didn't Littlefinger leak the information about Cersei's incest to Stannis? Alas. Anyways, back to the good eating. They eat some ham from Lady Tanda Stokeworth, who is using the pig as a bribe to get back to her castle. But Tyrion wants her in King's Landing. If she's scared, she could bring her garrison down from Stokeworth. If we need men so badly, then why did you send away your savages? A certain testiness crept into Cersei's voice. It was the best use of them I could have made of them, he told her truthfully. Truthfully, they're fierce warriors, but not soldiers. In formal battle, discipline is more important than courage. They've done us more good in the Kingswood than they would have ever done us on the city walls. Cersei brings up the antler men, and Tyrion notes that she's more annoyed than scared of them. Cersei wonders what the Lancers ever did to provoke such treason, which I just love. Tyrion says they've done nothing wrong, because they're Lannisters, right? But the antler men want to be on the winning side. Cersei wonders if all the traitors are found out, and Tyrion says, Varys says so, so, uh, yeah? A line appeared on Cersei's pale white brow between those lovely eyes. You put too much trust in that eunuch. He serves me well, Tyrion replied. Or so he'd have you believe. You think you're the only one he whispers secrets to? He gives each of us just enough to convince us that we'd be helpless without him. He played the same game with me when I first wed Robert. For years I was convinced I had no truer friend at court. But now... She studied his face for a moment. He says, you mean to take the hound from Joffrey. Tyrion is a little frustrated that Varys told Cersei that, but he puts that aside to tell Cersei that he needs Clegane at the front. Cersei counters that Clegane is needed with the king. No, he's not. He's needed in fucking battle. And the king needs to be seen by the troops too. And that's even if he's 13 years old. If there's real danger, he'll send Joff back to the Red Keep. Wait, wait, wait. Are you implying that the city is going to fall? Cersei asks. Well, not exactly. Cersei does, Tyrion does not think that King's Landing will fall, but if it does, they need to hold the Red Keep until Big Daddy Tywin arrives. Cersei then accuses Tyrion of lying to her before, and Tyrion's all like, you got me there, sis. But he only lied to her for good reason in the past. Anyways, he wants their relationship restored, so he's releasing Lord Giles Rosby and Boros Blunt back to her. Hooray? No. Cersei thinks Boros can rot back at Rosby. She really actually wants Tywin back, but Tyrion is not releasing him until he's safe under Jaslyn's protection. As he's safer under Jaslyn's protection. The meat gets cleared away and Cersei beckons for dessert, asking if Tyrion likes blackberry tarts. Tyrion likes all sorts of tarts. And then Cersei goes Cersei levels of sinister. Oh, I've known that for a long time. Do you know why Varys is so dangerous? Are we playing at riddles now? Tyrion asked. No, he doesn't have a cock. Neither do you. And don't you just hate that Cersei? Perhaps I'm dangerous too. You, on the other hand, are as big a fool as every other man. That worm between your legs does half your thinking. Tyrion licked the crumbs off his fingers. He did not like his sister's smile. Yes, and just now my worm is thinking that perhaps it is time I took my leave. Cersei asks if Tyrion is feeling sick as he looks flustered while giving her a peek at the tops of her boobs. Again, very normal family dynamics at work here. Tyrion swallows hard and thinks he hears something at the door. He feels like maybe he should have come with company. He asks Cersei why she's showing such interest in his dick, but she's not interested in that. She's only interested in who he fucks with it. And she finds out things that people don't want her to know. What are you trying to say? Tyrion asked. Only this. I have your little whore. Tyrion reaches, reached for his wine cup, buying a moment to gather his thoughts. I thought men were more to your taste. Oh, you're such a droll little fellow. Tell me, have you married this one yet? When Tyrion gave her no answer, she laughed and said, Father will be ever so relieved. 
Stunned, Tyrion wonders how Cersei found Shay, thinking that maybe Varys betrayed him, or maybe he had been found out on his journeys to Shatai's brothel. He asks Cersei why she cares so much who his girlfriend is. Cersei responds that she cares because Tyrion has schemed against her, stealing Marcella, plotted to kill Joffrey, and wanted to put Tommen on the Iron Throne. Well, I can't say that notion isn't tempting, Tyrion thought. This is madness, Cersei. Stannis will be here in days. You need me. But does Cersei really need Tyrion? Tyrion is no battle commander, and the cell swords Tyrion has will fight for gold regardless of who's paying them. But have no fear, Cersei isn't going to murder Tyrion. Yet, Jaime would never forgive this act. Tyrion then asks after the quote-unquote whore, refusing to say her name, hoping that if he convinces Cersei she means nothing to him, then she might survive. Cersei says the woman will be treated gently so long as Tyrion does not hurt her sons or daughter. But if Joffrey is killed or Tommen is captured, then she will be absolutely brutally fucking murdered. She truly believes I mean to kill my own nephew, Tyrion thought. The boys are safe, he promised her wearily. Cots be good, Cersei, they're my own blood. What sort of man do you take me for? A small and twisted one. Tyrion stares into his wine cup, wondering what Jaime would do. He'd probably kill Cersei, damn the consequences, but Tyrion was not Jaime. He would have to be as strong and cold as stone. He would be like Casterly Rock. So he tells Cersei that she's probably killed the woman already, but Cersei has already anticipated this move. She orders the woman brought in. Sir Osmond's brothers, Sir Osmond's brothers, Osney and Osfrey, were peas from the same pod, tall men with hooked noses, dark hair, and cruel smiles. She hung between them, eyes wide and white in her dark face. Blood trickled from her broken lip, and he could see bruises through her torn clothing. Her hands were bound with rope, and they gagged her so she could not speak. Outraged, Tyrion demands to know why she was hurt when Cersei promised otherwise. Osney cut up like replies that the woman fought, and Cersei says that the woman will, you know, just live as long as Joffrey does. Tyrion wanted to laugh at her. It would have been so sweet, so very, very sweet, but it would have given the game away. You've lost, Cersei, and the Kettleblacks are even bigger fools than Bronn claimed. All he needed to do now was to say the words. Instead, he looks at the girl and asks if Cersei will release her after the battle. She will, so long as Tommen's released. Tyrion pushed himself to his feet. Keep her then, but keep her safe. If these animals think they can use her, well, sweet sister, let me point out that the scale tips two ways. His tone was calm, flat, uncaring. He reached for his father's voice and found it. Whatever happens to her happens to Tommen as well. And that includes the beatings and rapes. If she thinks me such a monster, I'll play the part for her. Cersei had not expected that. You will not dare. Tyrion made himself smile, slow and cold. Green and black, his eyes laughed at her. Tear? I'll do it myself. Obligatory, but Tyrion is good, guys! Right? No. Cersei tries to slap Tyrion, but he catches her wrist, bending it back. Osfried Cuddleblack moves in to rescue her, but Tyrion threatens to break Cersei's wrist if he takes another step. Tyrion then oars the girl untied and the gag undone. The woman cries out in pain as Tyrion massages her fingers. He tells her to be brave and that he's sorry that they hurt her. I know you'll free me, my lord. I will, he promised. And Alayaya bent over and kissed him on the brow. Her broken lips left a smear of blood on his forehead. A bloody kiss is more than I deserve, Tyrion thought. She would have never been hurt but for me. Her blood still marked him as he looked down at the queen. I have never liked you, Cersei, but you were my own sister, so I never did you harm. You've ended that. I will hurt you for this. I don't know how yet, but give me time. A day will come when you think yourself safe and happy, and suddenly your joy will turn to ashes in your mouth, and you'll know the debt is paid. 
In war, his father had told him that once the battle was over, the incident army breaks and flees, no matter that they are as numerous as they were a moment before, still armed and armored. Once they had run before you, they would not turn to fight again. So it was with Cersei. Get out, was all the answer she could summon. Get out of my sight. Tyrion bows and says goodnight, heading back to the Tower of the Hand. He realized that he should have seen all this coming. Maybe it was a blind spot to have not realized Cersei would have men following him to Shatayas. Inside the Tower of the Hand, Tyrion finds Podrick Payne and orders a flagon of wine. He enters his chambers and finds Shay waiting for him, naked save for the gold hand of the king chained atop her breast that Tyrion left before coming to Cersei's chambers. Minor setup, minor payoff. Tyrion was not expecting her and asked what she's doing. She's here because she wanted some hands on her quote-unquote titties, but she thinks the hands from the chain necklace are cold. Wow. For a moment, Tyrion did not know what to say. He could not tell her that another woman had taken the beating meant for her and might as well die in her place should some mischance of battle befall Joffrey. He wiped Alia's blood from his brow with the heel of his hand. The Lady Loss, she's asleep. Sleep's all she ever wants to do, the great cow. She sleeps and she eats. Sometimes she falls asleep while she's eating. The food falls under the blankets and she rolls in it and I have to clean her. She made a disgusted face. All they did was fuck her. Her mother says she's sick. She has a baby in her belly. That's all. <laughs> okay. Shay is a gigantic asshole in this scene. My God, I had super forgotten about this. No, it does not justify whatever happens to her at the end, at the end of A Storm of Swords, but wow, what a fucking jerk. Tyrion looks around his room and asks how she got into his room. Shay's not really sure as far as made her wear a hood. She did get a quick glance at one point of a giant mosaic that looked like a red and black dragon. She went down ladders, walked a, walked a while, went through a gate, up another ladder, and so on and so forth. Perturbed, Tyrion starts searching around his room to find the secret passageway, and he finds nothing. He even resists sexing Shay in order to search his wardrobe. Still nothing. He returns to his bed, frustrated and annoyed. Shay undid his laces and threw her arms around his neck. Your shoulders feel as hard as rocks, she murmured. Hurry, I want to feel you inside of me. Yet as her legs locked around his waist, his manhood left him. When she felt him go soft, Shay slid down to the sheets and took him in her mouth, And but even that could not rouse him. After a few moments, he stopped her. What's wrong? She asked. All the sweet innocence of the world was written there in the lines of her young face. Innocence? Fool. She's a whore. Cersei was right. You think with your cock, fool. Fool. Just go to sleep, sweetling literature, stroking her hair. Yet long after Shay had taken his advice, Tyrion himself still lay awake, his fingers cupped over one small breast as he listened to her breathing. And that is A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 12. It's hard to call this chapter fun, because it's not. It's utterly fucking skin-crawling. But this chapter slaps so fucking hard, too. What did you think, sir? So in terms of the big-picture politics, Tyrion's arc in A Clash of Kings builds to the Battle of Blackwater. But in terms of his own personal struggles, his arc in this book builds to this chapter, his final confrontations with Cersei and Shay. His chapters have kept coming back to these two women the sister who stands in for the world's hatred of him, and the lover with whom he hopes to banish that hatred. In between them is Alayaya, a victim of this triangle of manipulations and projections. Tyrion is forced to stare down who he is and who his family is. These revelations will haunt him long after the battle is done. Before Tyrion fights the threat outside the walls, he has to deal with the threats inside. Like Sansa 4 a couple weeks ago, Tyrion 12 is a perfect breath before the plunge. Agreed. And George is fond of condensing Tolstoy's famous quote, 
of all happy families are alike. Each unhappy is unhappy in its own way. Into this is George's wording of it. Happy families are boring. Case in point, the Lannisters. Every Lannister is unhappy. Every Lannister has their unique trauma stemming mostly from Tywin, but also from their own individual peculiarities. And as a result, every Lannister is uniquely shitty in their own unique shitty way. But goddamn, at least they aren't boring, right? I mean, here in this chapter, the unique unhappiness of Tyrion and Cersei are on full display as they cloak and dagger against each other, all while gorging themselves on the finest food available to King's Landing, as said King's Landing starves and the forest burns beneath them. I, this is just an incredible gonzo scene that a writer like Hunter S. Thompson would be super proud of. Yet, ain't it realistic for these characters to be where they are and doing what they're doing for what's happening here? This gonzo scene is very in character for them. Tyrion and Cersei are thinking and operating with their hearts. And here, they seem to play Stannis in a, a bit and they set their hearts ablaze. Mm, that same sense of farcical, overwrought family drama you get with the Baratheons. I think that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Before the lions tear into each other, however, we get word of dead wolves. Varus's little birds in the north are saying that Theon Greyjoy killed Bran and Rickon Stark. In retrospect, it's an interesting choice for George to plant this fake payoff in a Tyrion chapter, literally and figuratively distant from the event itself. It's a way for him to obscure the reality of what happened. Theon IV ended without confirming what Ramsay's new plan was. Now all we have is the report, the image. To us as rereaders in retrospect, it seems clear that George would never kill off one of the major characters of the story this way. Balin Greyjoy? Sure, you can kill him offstage. No one cares about him. But Bran? The first-time reader, however, is unlikely to pick up on that. We don't have all the gruesome in-person deaths of A Storm of Swords in our mind's eye yet for comparison, and within this chapter we quickly move on to the Tyrion versus Cersei showdown. Structuring the reveal this way also defers the emotional fallout from the boys' apparent deaths. That will wait for Catelyn 7 next week. Instead, we are learning about this via characters without direct investment in that theater of the war. As Varys says... It is not his place to judge whether this is good or bad news. That seems inhumane. Yet he also, at least on the outside, mourns for the boys as young innocents who died unjustly. Is Varys just crying crocodile tears again? Maybe. But in his mind, I think he distinguishes the deaths themselves from whether or not they are good news. The event itself is objectively sad. But it might turn out to benefit Tyrion, or Varys with his own hidden plans, such as the price of political manipulations that you might look at a child's death and think, well, that might help me out. Right. I mean, that's kind of like what's happening writ large for, for Westeros. I mean, Varys' famous quote to Ned at the end of Game of Thrones is, why is it always the innocents who suffer most when you high lords play your Game of Thrones? Coming back to this scene here from A Clash of Kings, it, it kind of reads like that Varys is genuinely sad about Brandon Rickon's death. It's just kind of a true reaction. Divorced, though, from his political machinations at King's Landing, however, Varys, again, was probably genuine in feeling sadness over the death of children. As George R. R. Martin told actor Conleth Hill about Varys, he's ultimately a good person. Now, 
<laughs> have some disagreements about the uh, over the author's assessment of Varus as a good person. Death to the author. But Varus is more than willing to endanger children he brings into the Red Keep as his little birds, especially with their tongues being cut out and such. Again, something that George has also confirmed as saying. Moreover, this doesn't stop Varus from endangering more children by bringing more warfare to Westeros in the form of young Grift and his invasion of Westeros itself. It's kind of just like that Varus is just sad and that's the only emotion that he's feeling here but it doesn't change his behavior doesn't modify what he's doing and what his ultimate political purpose and end is Tyrion also has a complex reaction as he did to the news that Winterfell had fallen to Theon in the first place first Tyrion is struck by the breadth of the tragedy both of them both boys died then he recalls the wolves howling for Bran after his fall This is how we were introduced to Tyrion as a POV. His first chapter began with him listening to Summer howl mournfully at Winterfell. As with Alistair Thorne's warning about the zombies earlier in this book, Tyrion is briefly transported back to his time in the north, which had an impact on him. Are the wolves howling now, he wonders? The boys' wolves will come up again in Catalan 7 next week, and again when when Jon encounters Bran's wolf Summer in A Storm of Swords. The wolves are a constant clue that Theon's story is a lie. He might have fake boys thanks to Ramsay, but he doesn't have fake dire wolves, and everyone knows how devoted those wolves are to the boys. They would live or die together. How ironic that Tyrion invokes that sacred bond of the pack right before he and his sibling Cersei demonstrate they feel no such affection for each other. All Tyrion ultimately takes away from this news is that he can use it against his sister. He thrusts the letter at Cersei without a word, as if a weapon against the beauty she is displaying, as George writes it, the Lannister beauty that Tyrion alone lacks. Tyrion reminds Cersei that she is complicit in Bran's fall, and suggests that Catelyn might blame Cersei for what happened and take revenge on Jaime. Generally speaking, Tyrion has the upper hand on Cersei with information. We saw that at the start of this book, we saw that when he poisoned and manipulated her in the middle of the book, and we will see that at the end of this scene. But it's worth noting, in this little interaction before the scene really gets going, that Tyrion is totally inventing the idea that this will put Jaime at risk. There is no reason for Catelyn to make a connection like Theon is working for the Lannisters. Remember, she was apprehensive about Theon on his own terms. Moreover, Cersei is right that they hold Sansa hostage for just this situation, against anything happening to Jaime. Tyrion is trying to spook Cersei. That's the only thing he's trying to do with his information, just rattle her somehow. That sets the tone for the scene. Neither Lannister is capable of viewing anything in strategic, strategic terms, not first and foremost. Every element at play, every tool they have at hand, is reduced to ammunition against each other. I mean, Tyrion is attempting to play Ben Shapiro here and own the libs in this scene. <laughs> and Cersei and ends up on the losing side of the argument and like the on the uh, on the factual basis of the argument, so to speak. The dunker has been dunked upon, so to speak, by the facts. And this is microcosm to Tyrion's specific failure as Hand of the King. I mean, we've talked about this over and over again about the differences between Ned and Tyrion's own individual and specific failures as Hand of the King. But, you know, Ned, he failed to utilize the institutional power of Hand of the King to win short-term advantage for Robert and the Stark cause, failing to bring the full force of the office to bear against Cersei. Tyrion's failure is more interesting. He's more interested in winning today's infighting with whoever he's jousting with at the expense of the larger long-term goal. As Dantos Hollard said to Sansa in the last Sansa chapter, Queen Cersei and the Imp and Lord Varas and they're like, they all watch each other keen as hawks and pay this one and that one to spy out what the other is doing. You know, Team Lannister is infighting and intriguing against each other rather than doing anything actually 
good kind of policy-wise in order to combat the coming threat of Stannis Baratheon. Now, that's not to say there's no place for court intrigue. I mean, it's fun for us as readers, but I think there's also a place for it politically speaking. Tyrion has to deal with bad or corrupt people holding power. Cersei, Littlefinger, Varys, Joffrey, etc., etc., etc. But it's here that even if Tyrion really believes that Jaime is endangered, Tyrion doesn't propose any substantive policy or ideas to mitigate the potential harm of having of Brandon Rickon's death. Perhaps Tyrion could have sent a bird to Riveron expressing his thoughts and prayers for Bran, Rickon, and Catelyn and saying that the Lannisters had nothing to do with that specific attempted murder on Bran and Rickon. It's a paper shield for Jamie, but as Samuel tells John in A Feast for Crows and also in Dance of Dragons, a paper shield is better than no shield at all. That's Tyrion's role as Hand of the King, to suggest policy positions that would keep Jamie alive and work to mollify the bad relationship he and his sister have. But he can't. The emotional damage between the two has already been done, and there can be no healing and no alliance between the two. So Tyrion owns Cersei. And Cersei will then respond by owning Tyrion. Sort of. Not really. But speaking from personal experience, you can't own the libs on an empty stomach. Oh, of course. You gotta feed yourself for such important labors, and, and Tyrion feels much the same way. As you've said before, while George takes shit for his food porn, it's almost always there to serve some larger purpose in the scene. In this case, right after we get a loving description of all the food Cersei has laid out, Tyrion tells us that the courtesy is a cover. He's feeding Cersei all the choice portions first to be sure she doesn't poison him. As Tyrion thinks she probably wouldn't do so right before the battle, but he can't be sure because there is no trust here. He poisoned her after all. Tyrion must always wonder whether she's figured that out, whether she's decided that he's become more a liability to her than a useful asset. Now, Cersei is unquestionably the one who made this relationship what it is. Treating her with trust would amount to unilateral disarmament and just opening your, you know, just leaving yourself open to her. Tyrion's paranoia about her is logical, but it still contributes to the family's downfall. In the moment, it corrupts the delicious meal. This ought to be a moment of security and strength, restoring one another before the war arrives on their doorstep at last. Instead, Tyrion describes it hilariously as an ordeal in the opening <laughs> words of the chapter, a gauntlet he's dreading almost as much as the battle itself. Right. I mean, like, you know, it's supposed to be restoring the security and strength and bringing the Lannister cause to bear right before the battle itself, but it doesn't. And there's pretty good reason why we'll unpack here. The contrast, I think, is the dinner for this dinner is the Stark Harvest Feast back from Bram 2, 3, and the start of Bran 4, whereby northern lords and small folk alike share in a days-long feast to renew the bonds between the Starks and their vassals. As we talked about back in Bran 2 and 3, there is plenty of politicking at work in that feast as the Manderleys, Umbers, Glovers, all of those houses all attempt to gain political advantage and argue over such things as hunting rights, redrawing political boundaries, the right to hold the mint, etc., 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 but in the end, the Umbers and Manderleys, they don't like each other, but they work together to build the Northern Navy, and the political unity of the North remains Stark-centric. The bonds between the Starks and their vassals are strengthened, and trust is renewed. This feast, though, is nothing like that. It's the two most powerful people in King's Landing eating alone as the city starves. Moreover, as you were saying, Tyrion finds this an ordeal and where he, and a place where he's on guard and suspicious of Cersei. As you were also saying, Tyrion did poison Cersei in order to send Cleos Frey back to Riverrun on his own terms. You know, 
Taking it in a slightly more thematic direction, this whole Tyrion is poisoning Cersei. Tyrion suspects that Cersei would poison him. Tyrion is then framed for poisoning Joffrey. This family can't stop fucking poisoning each other or threatening to poison each other or suspecting that one, that one other is poisoning each other. It's a metaphor made flesh of the Lannisters and how the family relationship is poisoned and continues to fester in poison. The Starks, you know, it's interesting. The Starks don't have a food taster as far as we know. Bran doesn't suspect that Rickon is poisoning his food, or even that the Mandalese or Umbers want to murder him to gain advantage over him. Maybe it's just that the Boltons weren't present at the Harvest Feast because, you know, Ramsay did poison Dominic Bolton back in the day, and thus no one is actually wondering whether anyone's going to poison anyone. But there's a point to be made in how the Northmen treat each other like one big cantankerous family and the immediate Lannister family, not just the general Umber, Manderly, Stark, Glover, all those families, but how the immediate Lannister family relationship is just poisoned from the get-go. As Tyrion says, the news about the Starks has soured Cersei, reawakening her to how the war can change and claim your life in a heartbeat. No doubt she's thinking of her own children, which, as we'll see, makes her paranoid not only about Stannis, but also, yeah, her own family, about Tyrion. We get one, one final run down the checklist of converging plot points before the battle takes place. Cersei running desperately through their options. Still no word from Littlefinger, with Renly's former army in the Reach, the eventual source of their deliverance. Cersei wonders if Littlefinger has sold them out to Stannis. Momentum is all important, as we see with the Antlermen. When Cersei asks why they've betrayed them, Tyrion says because they think we're going to lose. Everyone wants to be on the winning side, which has a cascading effect, because as people join the winning side, it looks more and more like the winning side. But Stannis' temperament limits his ability to win that way. As Tyrion says, no way Littlefinger joined him because Stannis and Littlefinger despise each other. <laughs> which makes me like Stannis because I support yeah. anyone who gets Littlefinger out of power. <laughs> that also, however, makes it harder for Stannis to win. The Tyrells may not like Littlefinger any more than they like the Lannisters, but their worst case scenario is the guy they starved at Storm's End taking the Iron Throne. So if they have to get into bed with Littlefinger and the Lannisters to deal with that, then they will. They will. And that's all true. And yet it feels like Tyrion hasn't been paying much attention to Varys' intelligence reports about Stannis and how he's purchasing sellswords and sell sales. But more importantly, I think the Lannisters have really badly misjudged Littlefinger's motivations entirely. They seem to assume that because Littlefinger is master of coin and because he descends from minor nobility, that he's driven by money to do what he does. The reality is that Littlefinger is motivated primarily by his desire to garner power to, to himself due to his resentment fed by the Starks in history, and he also wants to win back Catelyn or Catelyn Ritzball in the form of Sansa. For her part, Cersei should have some inkling of this as she thinks just prior to Rock of Shame and A Dance with Dragons, Peter Bela should offer to wed Sansa Stark himself, she recalled. But of course, this was impossible. He was much too lowborn. Now, this may be a factor of George's guarding that he hadn't come up with this particular subplot for Ned's downfall and for Littlefinger's motivations when he wrote A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings. On the power part, though, the Lannisters keep granting Littlefinger more and more and more power. Recall that when he departs King's Landing, that they just shrug off giving him some reward. Sure, whatever you want, Littlefinger, as long as you return back with the Tyrells in hand. Moreover, Tyrion knows that Littlefinger wants Harrenhal, as it was part of his one, two, three plot from earlier in A Clash of Kings. But because these are Lannisters, they assume that all their near-peer politicos want gold as their ownership of the mines of Cashley are the primary source of Lannister power. But that's not necessarily the case. 
They have to keep in mind the the kind of various ways power expresses itself. It's not always hard currency. It's not always hard force. Littlefinger plays a slightly different game, and everyone's playing a slightly different game. We see that with the food, when the food itself enters into the discussion. The pig comes from Lady Tanda Stokeworth. It's a bribe attempt. She wants to be given leave to return to her castle. As the Lannister position disintegrates and Stannis' burning banners approach, those propping up the current regime want out, like rats off a sinking ship. Tyrion has already told us that Rosby and Stokeworth are the main sources of food for Castle and Garrison. And now Lord Rosby is a prisoner and Lady Stokeworth is trying to escape. These are not good signs. Tyrion points out that he had reason to arrest Lord Rosby unlike Lady Stokeworth because Lord Rosby was making off with Tommen. That, of course, is a very delicate topic with Cersei when they are only now broaching. She was the one who sent Tommen off with Giles Rosby, but Tyrion is framing it as Lord Rosby's solo treason. Who knows why he did that? It was a power play on Tyrion's part. Tyrion got away with it, and his polite evasion of what actually happened only makes Cersei angrier. When Tyrion says that he'd rather have the Stokeworth men brought to the city, she snaps that he shouldn't have sent off the clansmen if they're so much short on men. Tyrion is truthful, as George writes it, when he responds that it was the best use he could have made of them. The clansmen are fierce fighters, but lack discipline. This parallels what Corrin said last week about the wildlings in, in John 7. Just as Corrin was overlooking the larger political picture to keep John in line, however, Tyrion has made himself vulnerable in the process, even by making this logical best use of his clansmen fighters. For all that Tyrion tells himself he's doing better than Ned Stark, he made the same mistake of sending away his most loyal men. Their stories have in fact been running in parallel. In Ned's 12th chapter, in Book 1, he had his confrontation with Cersei in the Godswood, where the title phrase Game of Thrones was dropped. So in Tyrion's 12th chapter, in Book 2, he has his own confrontation with Cersei. It's less obviously iconic, but it's more gonzo, as you say, in its emotions. Ned's challenge brought Cersei's most deep-seated emotions to the forefront— but he himself was not the source of those emotions, so she could stay kind of behind that Ice Queen veneer that she was keeping up in Book 1. In this case, Cersei is building up a head of steam focused 100% on Tyrion. There is no detachment here. She is full, like, Gina Rowlands, all-caps, screaming kind of energy. She is about to vent poison that pays off their lifelong relationship. That's why she brings the conversation around once more to her children, who have increasingly become the battlefield of their sibling rivalry. We've already brought up Tommen. Now she shifts to Joffrey. Varys has reported that Tyrion makes means to take Sandor from Joffrey's side during the battle. Again, Tyrion has sound logic behind his decisions. He lacks strong individual fighters to lead sorties. Sandor may not exactly be popular, but the Hound is a fearsome figure that men will follow into battle. We see that in action at the Blackwater via Davos when Sandor literally rides up onto the deck of one of Stannis' ships to cut his men apart. Tyrion needs to keep Stannis from even securing a strong foothold because his men can't and won't sustain an extended straight fight. Other than the wildfire, this is arguably the most important task in the Lannister battle plan, but Cersei, naturally, insists <laughs> otherwise. Keeping Joffrey safe is the most important task. There is a rudimentary logic to that, in that Joffrey's place on the throne is what's at stake. If you lose him, it's kind of a big deal. But Cersei's execution of that logic is cartoonishly ineffective. She winds up sabotaging the Lannister position both before and during the battle. 
First of all, as Tyrion says, Joffrey will still be very well guarded. Secondly, it's important to have him present on the scene to keep morale high. He's never going to be close enough to the fighting to prevent him from retreating to the Red Keep, which was always the backup plan if things go wrong. Cersei is not processing this debate through the lens of what is best for the Lannister position. Just as Tyrion weaponized the apparent deaths of the Stark boys against her, she is seeing his battle plans through the lens of her certainty that he, Tyrion, not Stannis, is her ultimate enemy. That's why she taunts him about Jaime leading the sorties himself. She's both trying to get him killed and she wishes Jaime was here. Tyrion snarks back that Jaime can't exactly do that from his jail cell in Riverrun, <laughs> now can he? Jaime's absence has rubbed Cersei raw. And she says the only thing keeping her from killing Tyrion is the knowledge that Jaime would be angry. Even Tyrion's reassurances don't help his position in her eyes. As Tyrion will think in his next chapter, no matter what he does, a stray arrow could still claim Joffrey's life. You can never control everything on the battlefield. Cersei notes that Tyrion has lied to her before, which makes everything he's saying now suspect. He tries to sidestep that by offering her Giles and Boros Blount. He's been holding them back to assuage her when he needs to for exactly this moment. It doesn't work. She wants Tommen. She's worried about him in Tyrion's hands, and Tyrion will not let him go. So the civility starts to wear thin. Mm, agreed. And I think the subtext underlying Cersei's objections to Tyrion being in the battle, I think it'd be read in two ways. The first is that Cersei is overvaluing Joffrey's immediate safety, believing that Tyrion is placing Joffrey in danger and possibly doing this intentionally. Cersei is going to openly state in the next bit of dialogue from this chapter that she thinks that Tyrion actually means to kill Joffrey and put Tommen onto the Iron Throne. To Tyrion's kind of like, what? No, I mean, I've thought about that. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> that's not what I'm all about. Uh, at the same time, though, I think like that Cersei does not necessarily understand what it means to have the leader of the coalition going into battle alongside of the men. If Joffrey is not present, what are the men fighting for? They're fighting for Joffrey's hold onto the Iron Throne, but Joffrey is not willing to put himself forward. I think, again, that is overvaluing the, the security of Joffrey at the expense of the actual battle. And it's the expense of the security of King's Landing and the ultimate fate of, of Joffrey as well, as Joffrey will certainly die if Stannis takes King's Landing because the men lose their heart and lose their morale and... Uh, Joffrey ended up, being ended up being dead just as fast that way. The second uh, bit of subtext, I think, is that Cersei sees her children not as individuals, but as extensions of herself and weapons by which she wields power. In other words, Cersei sees Tyrion as stealing away another one of her children, thus disempowering her as Joffrey is the key to Cersei's hold on power. This has already happened in a lesser context with Tyrion stealing Tommen on the Rosby Road, and she interprets this as Tyrion cutting into her hold of power by abducting the heir of the throne. And, you know, to give Cersei just a small modicum of, of credit, she's not exactly wrong at this point. This was a clear power play on Tyrion's part. And as much as Tyrion attempts to frame this as keeping the heir to the throne safe, isn't that what Cersei was doing by sending Tommen to Rosby in the first place? Again, the complete lack of trust between these Lannisters have poisoned their ruling philosophy. The Queen Regent and the Hand of the King are bitter enemies. They can't trust that either party is operating in good faith. It's like Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill uh, from World War II basically operating to fight against the Nazis in the form of Stannis. God, this, this, yeah, that's, that's going real wrong. That's okay. <laughs> it, it works. Thus, they scheme against each other instead of working together with Stannis at the fucking gates. This dynamic then immediately gets turned up to 11 as Cersei plays what she thinks is her poison card against Tyrion. 
Cersei has been slowly increasing the pressure on Tyrion throughout this scene, turning up that boiling water on the frog, testing him to see if she's right, that he means harm to her sons. She waits for dessert to spring the trap, as if this, this trap, is the true sweet treat that she's been waiting for, and George uses the tart wordplay to steer us into sex as a topic. Varys popped in earlier in the chapter, and Cersei brings him up as an example of how sex works in the political arena. As far as Cersei is concerned, Varys is dangerous because he's a eunuch. Sexual desire makes men do stupid things, so Varys avoids those mistakes. Varys himself makes that argument regarding Tyrion and Shay at one point right before the Purple Wedding. Tyrion, according to Varys, just deliberately ignores his own intelligence where Shay is concerned. It's no wonder that Cersei believes this. She's borne the bruises of Robert's desire. She's seen that Jaime's desire for her makes him subordinate to her. She admires Tywin because she believes he's an exception. That's why she freaks out at Shay's body being found next to his. And now, Tyrion's sexual desire has made him vulnerable, handing Cersei a weapon to strike back against the imp who supposedly threatens her children. Tyrion thinks sarcastically that while Cersei might mock the cock, she still wants one. I don't think Cersei was intended as a trans character, but I do think George wound up with a character that speaks to the trans experience, judging from what many trans readers have said about it. For me, Cersei comes off less as someone with gender dysphoria than someone who hates that she has been excluded from power due to her gender. And this is the contradiction for her. You need a cock to have power, but cocks make you do such stupid things with your power once you have it. I should have power because I don't have that problem, she thinks. But Cersei's all-consuming lust for power gets in her own way. She doesn't literally have a penis, but she suffers her own version of the ego blindness she accurately diagnoses in people who do have penises. Cersei enjoys playing with Tyrion like he enjoyed playing with her regarding the death of the Stark boys. She shows him the top of her breasts as she's talking about how sexual desire makes men easy to control. So Cersei is showing as well as telling... But this also gets at the incestuous Lannister family dynamic, one that extends beyond Cersei and Jaime. George implies that, really, the Lannisters all kind of want to fuck each other. As an expression of narcissism, they just want to make love to their mirror images. So on one hand, they're not close enough emotionally to nourish and support each other as family members ideally should. On the other hand, they're too intimate, crossing each other's borders recklessly with no respect. Cersei has reached into Tyrion's sex life and taken a hostage, weaponizing his lust in order to keep her children safe from their uncle. Well, that's how she thinks about it anyway. The bleak humor of this scene is how Cersei has misread and overreacted, causing the very family strife she feared. Tyrion has no intention of killing her children. Yet. In the grand tradition of tragedy and dramatic irony, it is only because of how Cersei and Tywin treat him that Tyrion decides he will turn on his family. I shall be the monster you have all preemptively decided I am. At this point, though, he's just weary with her foolishness and heartsick at the thought of what he has done to Shay. Did he give himself away with that moonlit romantic ride to her side back in Tyrion 10? Turns out love is a poison after all. The bonds of blood have not stopped Cersei from tormenting him, so naturally she believes those bonds wouldn't stop Tyrion from hurting her children. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy rooted in her own lack of empathy. Tyrion can't rely on love, so he has to fall back on force. But bronze swords won't fight without me. 
But that's a lie, precisely because of the lack of love at work. They love only his gold, the true source of Lannister power, as he tells himself at chapter's end, Shay loves me only for my gold. Mm. And it's such a heartbreaking moment at chapter's end, and also here where Tyrion believes that it's only his gold that's what makes him valuable. Because I think this is a blind spot where, where Tyrion hammers home that the Lannisters have been blinded by the glitter of their own gold. Because the sellswords that Tyrion has had Bronn purchase are not his only value. In fact, they're kind of minor in the grand scheme of things and really don't play that huge of a part in the Battle of the Blackwater. It's actually Tyrion's brain. It's his mind that's his greatest weapon in the coming battle. The entire defense of King's Landing rests on Tyrion's battle plan, the one that he's drawn up and written and flushed out with his subordinates. He's a goddamn theater commander for the Lannister side. That Tyrion doesn't bring this up can be read either as a blind spot for Tyrion valuing gold over wits, or it could also be read as Tyrion's lack of confidence in himself or his ability to plan a successful defense. The other part, of course, is that George won't have Tyrion vocalize his wildfire chain plan here so as to preserve the surprise of when this happens just four chapters hence in Davos 3. Still, the Lannister playbook rests entirely in Tyrion's, in Tyrion's brain. He's using Sander Clegane and Sir Balan Swan to run stories against Baratheon toeholds on the north bank of the Blackwater. His ships are firing arrows at the south bank of the Blackwater. His clansmen are running a forest war against Stannis' vanguard. That's all Tyrion. That's all his plan. But he can't say that's why he's valuable. He's held captive by his own low self-esteem, and he falls back on gold as his only value. It's so, so sad. Yeah, I think you get at something important about that interplay between Tyrion's political actions and his more personal self-image. Throughout this book, Tyrion has acted as the center of power, even as part of him realizes how fragile it all is. Now that has come to the fore. As he told Shay, even as acting Hand of the King, he is powerless within his family. Yet his family is all he has, the only reference points he knows. Even as his sister betrays him, Tyrion can think only of his father and brother, just like how Theon can only think of Ned Stark. What would Jaime do, Tyrion thinks? Kill his enemy immediately, and think about the consequences later. But look where that got him, rotting in a cell beneath River Run. Moreover, Tyrion lacks the physical strength to be like Jaime, to just kind of assume immortality and immunity from the consequences. Tyrion has never fulfilled that golden sword image, which is part of why Cersei hates him so much. So instead, Tyrion calls upon the image of their father. He must be hard stone like Casterly Rock. Tywin is his castle on a figurative level. Jaime is like fire and Tywin is like ice, at least as far as Tyrion is concerned. The two poles of masculinity, the two ways to be a lion of House Lannister. Tyrion reaches for his father's icy, ruthless voice and finds it. He refers to Shay as the whore, so Cersei won't think her too valuable to him. He demands to see her, lest Cersei think to kill her and lie to him about it. Cersei summons in the other Kettle Black brothers, Osni <laughs> and Osfrid. Again, George is focusing on family dynamics. These two are alike as peas in a pod, as Tyrion says, a united family taking advantage of Lannister division by playing both sides against the other, selling out Tyrion to Cersei and vice versa. Only now, Osni looks different. He bears fresh scars, the fallout of the violent relationship between the Lannister siblings, born by their lower-class pawns. The lions give orders, and the lesser beasts fight. Like the Baratheon bros, Tyrion and Cersei externalize their private feud onto everyone else. Osni, of course, isn't the only one hurt. The woman caught helpless between the Kettleblack bros has suffered far more. 
George pulls off quite the gambit here in terms of tone. He contrasts the horror of the woman's situation with the sneaky reveal of who she actually is. Her skin described as dark is a hint that it's actually Alayaya, not Shay. But it's not to a first-time reader because we're just going through it. Just, you know, we're, we're not dwelling on one word at a time like that. So when Tyrion suddenly wants to laugh in Cersei's face, it's disconcerting. We don't know why. Now, in retrospect, we do know why. Cersei is acting like she's defeated Tyrion, and she's mishandled the situation entirely. She got the wrong woman. But for the first-time reader, it's, though Tyr- it's as though Tyrion is laughing at the sight of a woman beaten and kidnapped due to his own family squabbles. It would be so sweet to rub Cersei's nose in it, he thinks. Indeed, it would. But it's revealing that this is his first reaction. Again, everything is just ammunition for their own internal feuds. Cersei can't even pretend to care about the violence inflicted on Aliyah. It's all just about the Lannisters. So instead, Tyrion sticks with Tywin's voice, threatening to respond to any assaults on Aliyah with similar assaults upon Tommen, because that's a language he knows Cersei will understand. Yeah, and I love the way that George describes Tyrion in in this part. His tone was calm, flat, uncaring. He'd reached for his father's voice and found it. That Tyrion has to reach for his father's voice means that at this point in Tyrion's character arc, he's not quite yet Tywin writ small. He's still Tyrion the individual at some level. This is not always going to be the case as seen especially in A Dance with Dragons and the Winds of Winter sample chapters when Tyrion quite casually says that if young Kai wanted to win against Marine, just poison the fucking wells. That's what his father would have done. But he reaches and brings his father's voice here, speaking as he imagines Tywin would have confronted with this situation. Because Tywin would and has used the threat of beatings and rapes to enforce his will. And he uses brutality and rape in his war on the Riverlands and in the Rain Tarbeck Rebellion and the Sack of King's Landing in Westerosi history. But it's only in Tyrion's imagining. When Tyrion tries to explain himself to Tywin in a Storm of Swords, it, it does not go the way that Tyrion thought it would. As Tywin says, to save a whore's virtue, you threatened your own house, your own kin. Is that the way of it? Notice that Tywin doesn't say threatened your own nephew, it's threatened your own house. Again, for Tywin, it's always not about family, it's political legacy, and that is something that Tyrion does not quite get, at least yet. But that's Storm of Swords. Here, Tyrion reaches not just for his father's voice, but his, for his specific actions with him. Tywin had Tysha gang-raped by his guards as warning to Tyrion never to dishonor the house by marrying someone below the Lannister name. Here's the kicker. Cersei herself is trying to play Tywin with this gambit with Aliyaya. You hurt someone I love, I'll hurt someone you love. Cersei utilizes the history of Tywin in marching his father's mistress naked through the streets of Lannisport and references Tyrion marrying Tysha in this scene. The implicit threat here is that if Tommen, Joffrey, or Marcella are harmed in any way, Cersei is going to go tell dad, and that horror that Tyrion witnessed will be revisited in the current day and age. The toxicity of Tywin Lannister is bleeding into his children and how they interact with each other. They only understand love is poison, as Cersei said in the last Sansa chapter, and Cersei believes that her only weapon is to use fear and violence to win her power back. It's why she surrounds herself with Kettleblacks and Sandra Clegane's. It's why she doesn't really restrain Joffrey in any real meaningful sense. In that one sense of violence and fear thereof, Joffrey is a complete extension of Cersei. And that entire mentality is born of their father, who only smiled twice, according to Pycelle from the World of Ice and Fire, and who rules his lands, his lords, his small folk through fear and prosecutes his political will through brutal, ugly, immoral violence. 
as we're going to find out at the end of A Storm of Swords, Tywin has a family legacy of utter and total shit. Mm, beautifully said, sir. Once more, we see the ironic structure of tragedy at work, filtered through the harsh realities of abusive families. Tyrion and Cersei are both anticipating the worst possible reaction from the other, and in doing so, they inspire those reactions. Their fears bring themselves to life. Cersei assumes the worst about Tyrion regarding his intentions to her children, leading her to kidnap the woman she thinks Tyrion cares for. Tyrion, in order to appear in order to appear strong enough to keep that woman safe, threatens to rape his own nephew. They've chased each other down the drain. Neither can either neither can ever possibly trust the other again. Both are now convinced that they were right all along to despise the other. Tyrion declares that their family bonds are sundered. He will hurt Cersei for this. He will turn her joy into ashes. Lannisters pay their debts, as they both say, and they owe each other nothing but pain. It is epic Shakespearean stuff. I thrill for Tyrion when he reminds Cersei that she will never hit him again. But as he himself knows, he bears responsibility for Alayaya's bloody kiss she leaves behind on his forehead. She leaves as she entered, born between the Kettleblack siblings. And that stands in for how she is suspended, figuratively, between the Lannister siblings, suffering as the fallout from their endless strife filtered through power. Tyrion compares his confrontation with Cersei to a battle, remembering how his father once said that the battle is over when one side breaks. Doesn't matter how numerous they are, the material signifiers of power fail when no one believes in the shadow on the wall anymore. So Tyrion declares victory when all Cersei can do in response to his joy into Ashes monologue is to tell him to get out. Tyrion has won the battle. But has he? The Lannisters are about to face literal battle against a famously merciless foe wielding fire and blood. Yet the battle in Tyrion's mind at this moment, the armored feet marching through his skull as he puts it, is with his sister, his own family, inside the walls. Is that not defeat? The personal is political throughout this chapter, so the same logic applies to the larger coalition emerging victorious from the Battle of Blackwater. This house is divided against itself. Come a storm of swords, it will not stand. And I mean, it, it really is a defeat for Tyrion, and his subconscious recognizes you were pointing out. But it's also Tyrion who is retreating from Cersei's chambers. So who actually won there? It might not have been Tyrion. And I, I want to shift direction just for, for a moment here and talk about the scene as it was adapted in Game of Thrones Season 2. Because, you know, we do spoilers for anything and everything to include Game of Thrones spoilers. By and large, Tyrion Lannister's story from Season 2 received a, a ton of deserved praise with Peter Dinklage just nailing Tyrion Lannister as a character. In my mind, I have a hard time visualizing Tyrion without seeing Peter Dinklage. At the same time, the whitewashing of Tyrion, as we discussed in our Patreon bonus episode, whitewashed Danny, Tyrion, and John in Game of Thrones, wasn't evidence even back in Season 2. The adaptation of this scene is a, is a case in point for both. It's a microcosm for how the showrunners did so many things right with Tyrion, having him threaten Cersei, the joy turning to ashes in her mouth lines. Those are all ripped straight from A Clash of Kings. And Peter Dinklage does a great line delivery of those threats to Cersei. It's, it's wonderful acting stuff all around for both Dinklage and Lena Headey. But this was a foretaste of problems with adapting Tyrion Lannister down the road. In the show's adaptation, there was only the threat that Tyrion would hurt Cersei and that her joy would turn to ashes. 
There was no threat to have Tommen beaten and raped if Roz, because Alia was not in Game of Thrones, Roz was the character that was there, if she was harmed or raped. The whole scene with Tyrion and the scene in A Clash of Kings is dark, man. And it's that darkness from which Tyrion springs to nihilistic life in A Dance with Dragons. Now, you might be a little confused about the plot points, but you could read this scene and this chapter from A Clash of Kings and then flip on over to A Dance with Dragons Tyrion 1 and pick up Tyrion's character arc from there. But the show went a different route of having Tyrion play the good guy to Cersei and Stannis the bad guy. And Tyrion continues to play the good guy throughout the throne show from soup to nuts. Now, opinions differ, but in my correct opinion, Tyrion's dark moments that never made it into season two contributed to a lesser character in Tyrion in the show. Shay, uh, one more time, uh, lesser character in the show. And I think that was in evidence starting here in season two and had significant ramifications and butterfly effects as George has talked about going forward, even all the way to the very final scene of Tyrion in Game of Thrones season eight. Another character that was significantly changed from books to show was the character of Shay. And wouldn't you know it, but that's who Tyrion runs into at chapter's end. As we have said before, for all that Tyrion is worried about Shay's safety in the city, he has been putting her in danger from his family all along. Now another woman has paid the price. Tyrion can't ignore that like he can ignore all the other factors threatening his little bubble with Shay. George does a good job of capturing Tyrion's relief that it's not Shay while also communicating to the reader that what's happening is still horrible. It's similar to what went down at Winterfell. Bran and Rickon aren't actually dead, which is a relief to us, but two boys still died in their place. This is not an incidental error on Cersei's part. Tyrion used Shatiya's brothel, and Aliyah specifically, as a shield to keep Shay safe. This is what was supposed to happen. Why else play that little game with Alayaya in the closet except for this scenario, so that when Cersei came down on Tyrion, she would hurt the wrong woman? This is what Tyrion was prepared to have happen, but it's not something he ever wanted to think about consciously. Now he has no choice. Now when he looks at Shay's naked body and laughing smile, all he can see is Alayaya's bruises. He can feel her bloody kiss like the, tail like the beating of the telltale heart. As he says... He should have seen this coming all, all along. He didn't want to see. And I think that's more familiar to most people than directly committing acts of great evil. This is the deal Tyrion made to hold on to the scrap of humanity Tywin left him, the heart he hadn't yet set on fire, and look at the cost. Tyrion had mused about doing justice during foreplay with Shay earlier, but now foreplay fails him as he realizes just how far from doing justice he is. Shay's body is where he finds relief from the demands of the Game of Thrones. Now Tyrion understands at last that sex is not separate from the Game of Thrones. The political and personal worlds are always intertwined. That connection is woven through the whole chapter and ties into the subjects of conversation between Tyrion and Shay. He brings up Lawless. As you say, Shay has nothing but scorn and contempt for her mistress. All they did was fuck her. I think there are several factors at work here. First of all, Shay is just tired of literally cleaning up after Lawless. We can point out that Lawless is deeply traumatized from gang rape, that Shay is being insensitive. This is easy for us to say, because unlike Shay, we don't have to spend our days washing shit off of Lawless. We might be less inclined towards sympathy at that point. There are different power dynamics at play. In gender terms, Lawless is a victim of a hideous crime. Shay should have empathy for her, especially as a fellow woman. In class terms, 
Shay literally takes the shit for it all, so that sympathy starts to fade. Shay may seem naive about what actually happened to Lalas, saying all it was was sex. Lalas could easily have been mutilated or murdered at any moment during the rape. She was being made totally powerless. This is not just like, you know, sex with a rude man of some kind that Shay might be envisioning. Then again, maybe I'm being too hard on Shay. Maybe she's not being naive. She herself claims to have been molested by her father. Maybe she knows what she's talking about. As with Cersei, suffering doesn't always breed empathy for your fellow victims. Sometimes it breeds a competitive instinct to outrun your fellow victims and seize the prizes by which you can protect yourself and only yourself. Shay's callousness isn't so far removed from Sandor's belief that strong arms and steel swords rule this world. It's just on the other side of the gender line. Tyrion can't help but flinch from that. After what happened to Alayaya, it strikes a little too close to home. That same contrast applies regarding the other topic of conversation, how she got into his chambers in the first place. Varys snuck her in. Just as Tyrion used a secret passage to reach Shay, giving Alayaya away in the process, Shay used a secret passage to reach him. Her presence in his bed speaks to the world of espionage and deceit that trapped Alayaya. Tyrion searches for the passage into his rooms. He can't find it. This speaks to his powerlessness despite his position. His inability to discover this secret, this secret tunnel stands in for his inability to keep Alayaya safe from the consequences of being on the wrong side of the other secret tunnel. It turns out Tyrion's not actually in charge of any of this. All Shay remembers seeing is a dragon mosaic on the floor. A glimpse of a glimpse, an image made up of fragments. Cersei only saw part of Tyrion's movements. Tyrion only sees part of the truth here. Tyrion lies awake, knowing that the dragon, the fire, is already inside the walls. Paranoia is taking hold of him like so many Targaryens in the past. By his next chapter, he will have unleashed the wildfire to hold on to power. But at the end of this chapter, Tyrion feels as powerless as he ever has. Yeah, and I mean, if you remember back to Tyrion 7, the Clash of Kings at chapter's end, when Tyrion crows about how awesome everything is, remember this this line of dialogue slash thought that Tyrion is having? This is no dream, he promised Shay. It is real. All of it, he thought. The wars, the intrigues, the great bloody game, and me in the center of it. Me, the dwarf, the monster, the one they scorned and laughed at. But now I hold it all. The power, the city, the girl. This was what I was made for, and gods forgive me, but I do love it. This chapter's end feels kind of like comeuppance for that entire line of thought by Tyrion back from Tyrion 7. Tyrion doesn't hold any actual power, as you were saying. His city is in very serious danger of falling to Stannis, and while he holds the girl at his shay quite literally in his arms, he knows that she's in serious danger and that others are also endangered by him and by Shay. Does Tyrion love the great bloody game now at chapter's end? I, I don't think so. He wipes Alia's blood off his forehead, knowing that she was hurt because of him, because of the game he and his sister and all the people in King's Landing, the High Lords, play. The Game of Thrones ultimately feels less academic here, much less like a fun board game and more like feeling a ton of guilt over being the cause of an innocent's pain and possible murder. Is the great Game of Thrones worth it all in the end when there's innocent blood being shed? I hope that Tyrion thinks subconsciously at least, no. And we shall see, but you know, Tyrion is almost 
he's almost stepping beyond rational thought. You know, he's being being playing a role he has to play and that he doesn't believe in. But you, you, you kind of become the mask. You know, even as Tyrion doesn't doesn't love the game anymore, he feels the need to play it more than ever. And I think you're right. That's kind of the arc he goes through from from loving it to hating it, but still having to play it. And so moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, Tyrion hopes, as he says in this chapter, that if things go poorly in the battle, that Tywin will march to relieve them. And he is uh, more right than he knows, as uh, Tywin will not only show up to relieve them, he will show up with the Tyrells in tow at the climax of the Blackwater. So uh, George is kind of burying that here in plain sight, even as he's telling us, oh, no word from the Reach. Who knows what's up with those guys? Mm -hmm. No one knows. Yeah, and, and I think, like, at, you have to imagine at this point that Littlefinger's already met up with the Tyrells, and the Tyrells have already marched to Bitter Bridge, and they're now coming down on the barges, down the Blackwater, in order to intercept Stannis's army. So, yeah, it, it, all the pieces are in motion, but Tyrion is so cut off from the rest of the world that he has no idea what the greater game of Thrones is being played outside of, of King's Landing. So it's kind of a suffocating experience for Tyrion to be in here, and... Thankfully, Tywin will come down and relieve the Siege of King's Landing with a huge army in tow. So Tyrion also wonders here whether Cersei would uh, kill hostages if both Joffrey and Tommen were dead. You know, she's saying, like, oh, what would you do if you were in Catelyn's position now that Bran and Rickon are dead? And, well, you know, again, that's not so hypothetical. You know, now Joffrey is extremely dead, and Tommen and Marcella are pre-dead, very much, you know, set up to be corpses come tea well. So that opens the question of what Cersei's going to do. Yeah, I'd uh, probably kill a lot of people, you know, potentially burn down a, a lot of King's Landing, potentially, if you believe some of those theories. But I think that's, yeah, I think all those those children, all, all of Cersei's children are dead, as prophesied by by Maggie the Frog. And I think it's it's all leading to the downfall of a lot of people, a lot of deaths of a lot of people as a result of all of her children being dead. Along those same lines of thoughts, we get a, some kind of Jamie as the Valonqar foreshadowing here with Tyrion thinking that Jamie would kill Cersei if she threatened to murder a woman that he loved. Maybe Brienne, maybe that's going to be the the linchpin that brings down the ultimately brings down the relationship between Cersei and Joffrey is that Cersei says, I'll fucking kill Brienne or something like that. Jamie's like, I, I can't let her live or something like that. I, I'm not sure if that's exactly at play, but I think it could be a potential C that George is working with here. I think definitely it's, you know, having uh, Tyrion think that. Jamie would kill Cersei in his shoes is definitely a subtle setup for that, even if, you know, obviously Jamie wouldn't literally kill Cersei at this moment, but I think it's set up for it later, definitely. After Alia is whipped by Tywin, Tyrion tells Bronn in A Storm of Swords that he'll need to fulfill his threat to Cersei in order to beat Tommen. As we talked about before, though, Tommen was rescued, in quotation marks, from this fate. And um, yeah, so he's not able to actually fulfill his threat to Cersei, which, uh, again, thank goodness that didn't happen at the same time, that does not spare Tom and his his downfall someday down the road. Tyrion is grateful for it, too, as he thinks he doesn't want to do it, but he thinks he has to stay strong and stay powerful against that that kind of ultra-competitive Lannister game that definitely Tywin, Tywin set into motion. So this will not be the last time that Shea wears that golden hand of the king chain. She'll be wearing that chain when Tyrion uh, drops by his old chambers in the Storm of Swords, and she will then be strangled by Tyrion with that very chain before he goes on to kill Tywin, too. Yeah, this is so so lovely. Yeah, I mean, there's it's clear that George just has this in mind for for Shay's fate, and you know it's interesting that Tyrion leaves the chain aside, much as he is the chain is ripped away from him by Tywin when Tywin arrives at the end of a Clash of Kings, and then that chain is then used very specifically to to murder Shay. So yeah, all that sorts of great foreshadowing and payoff. Not really great. It's, it's very horrific. Uh, the mosaic that Shay makes out on the floor, that kind of red and black dragon one, is one and the same with the one that Tyrion is going to see when Varys leads him through the tunnels in, in A Storm of Swords to get to the chambers 
uh, of Shay there. So again, like we're we see glimpses from Shay's perspective of what she saw being led to Tyrion's chambers, but in a storm of swords, Tyrion is going to see specifically what is actually down there, and I think it's a really great. Um, thematic point in that Tyrion crosses the red and black dragon in a storm of swords, which has what seems to foreshadow him joining up with the red and black dragon, in the form of, of the Targaryens, in the form of, of Daenerys and may, maybe the black, the black and red dragon as well, too, if that was in the, in the cards as well. I agree. He's crossing the threshold into the dragon's domain away from the red keep, having gone kind of, he's, as he says, he came into King's Landing with all his men. He's leaving kind of, you know, down, th- rattling through the dark like a spider and moving on to a new world. And um, also in the in the vein of all the, the the tunnels that they're exploring in the Red Keep, Tyrion looks everywhere for the secret entrance here in his room, but except of course for the correct place, which is uh, he crawls out through uh, through the hearth, right in the Storm of Swords. Was it the hearth? I guess you're right. Yeah. You, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It was the was the hearth. Yeah, he can't find the actual place, but he uh, he searches everywhere for it. But it uh, turns out not to be the any of the places that he looks for. So, moving on now into our uh, theory slash discussion portion, uh, there's an w- uh, interesting little nugget in this chapter that stands out on reread. That when when Cersei is is talking about how you know Tyrion shouldn't trust Varys for information, she says that ah, there was a time when I first came to court that I thought Varys was my best friend I had here, but ah, uh, not anymore. And it's interesting to consider why George might have included that and what that might be indicating. So, w- what do you think? Why is why did Varys make nice with Cersei when she arrived at court, and then why did he stop? That's a great question. I think it's like uh, we were talking about this in pre-production, but it's an interesting vantage point to see what the early parts of Robert Baratheon's reign looked like in terms of the dynamics that are at play with the new regime coming in and Varys attempting to survive since he was a Targaryen loyalist. So Varys's MO with his friends is to use and discard them when they don't have much use anymore. You know, as soon as Tyrion accomplished his use in staving off the city's capture by Stannis, Varys essentially ghosts Tyrion until the end of A Storm of Swords. With Cersei, it seems that Varys was running an earlier version of this protocol where he had been pardoned by Robert but was still probably suspect in terms of his loyalty. So he was probably at one level trying to keep his head. It's also possible that Varys knew about the twin sister already as Jaime and Cersei slept together in 281 AC. Remember that time that Jaime recounts in A Storm of Swords when Cersei convinced him to take the White Cloak? That actually occurred in King's Landing. And played at friendship with Cersei to learn how she operates and thinks so he can exploit it later on when he brought the Blackfires to, to Westeros. But I'll present another uh, possibility. Varys was aware that Tywin really wanted to betroth Cersei to Rhaegar, and perhaps was even made aware that Cersei considered Rhaegar the most beautiful man in the realm. Varys likely saw this as a potential division point between Cersei and Robert, and was using this as a route to sow chaos ahead of young Griff's arrival in Westeros. Crazy to think, but what if, what if the Lannisters and Baratheons had a grand war against each other and young Griff shows up to save the day? What if? I'm just speculating here. John Aaron at least believed that a marriage between Robert and Cersei was vital to solidify the new regime, so unmortaring that marriage alliance on Varys' part would potentially drive the realm back into civil war again and back into the chaos that Varys needs in order to make young Griff's invasion of Westeros potentially successful. What do you think, sir? You make great points. I think interesting paths either way. I think it comes down to, I guess, what Varys thought of Cersei and Robert's relationship at first. Because, you know, at first from the outside, it looks like they're getting along just fine. So maybe he was just looking for an ally in Robert's corner, someone, again, who would keep him safe from Robert's wrath if if Robert decided he didn't, you know, like his spymaster one day. 
But yeah, as time went on, I, I, I can't imagine it takes to take Varus long to realize that Robert was never going to get the nerve to kill him and would never be able to replace him. <laughs> so maybe Varus just yes, just start became distant from Cersei at that point because he realized, oh, I don't, I don't need any such protection. You know, Robert really probably be more worried about Cersei having him killed for her own reasons, probably. So he started distancing himself from her. And uh, yeah, the the twin says, yeah, I'd forgotten that there is, of course, yeah, that one that one example where Cersei and Jamie do come together in King's Landing. And of course, they take efforts to disguise themselves, but we see in this chapter that that doesn't always work out. So maybe Varys, maybe Varys knew earlier than anyone. That's that's simply interesting to consider. I wonder how far back. I mean, yeah, man, that's that's even before. Obviously, that's before the Mad King even went down. So how how far back does Lannister twin says to figure into Varys's plans? That would be wild if it was it was it went that far back. I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, Varys is a long-term planner when it comes to these things. Like, a lot of his plans have been in motion since before Robert's Rebellion actually happened. And I mean, there's there's lots of speculation as to, as to what Varys was was planning and how he planned to bring down Aerys' regime and prop up the probable Blackfire claimants to the Iron Throne at some point thereafter. But Robert's Rebellion happened, and there was no way to kind of stuff that uh, that that back into the sack, so to speak. So it, it became Varys had to kind of redo his plan as he as he, as he says to, to Tyrion, you know, all the big fish are swimming around and me, I just keep on paddling. He's the guy that's always attempting to stay afloat and keep his plans afloat as well. And he does kind of do some how's it that Stephen Atwell put it? He, he talked about uh, Littlefinger being a jazz improvisario and and Varys being a classical ca- concert pianist. Uh, pianist is that the right word? Pianist is the religious one. Pianist is the one that's not not the religious one. So pianist. Um, and how he he's constantly like has his great worked out plans, but then as it turns out, he has to constantly modify his plans and operate more like Littlefinger as as the narrative progresses. So, you know, it's 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 hard to to know exactly why Varys was interested in Cersei. But I do think at some level it does have to factor into both his survival and the potential for his long-term plans to unseat the ruling house, whoever that ruling house is in Westeros, and plant his own ruling house into the into into Westeros itself. That, that seems very strongly reasonable when it comes to Varys's planning and motivations. Agreed, and I think within this scene, it's just a reminder to Tyrion that you know he's not the first person Varys has made nice with. That Varys always you know has his allies at court, but. He always seems to have a different plan and have a different plan elsewhere, and he's he's up to something with someone you know, no one is expecting, and that's the big payoff, of course, of Young Griffin and Dance with Dragons, as we finally glimpse behind the curtain and see what Varus's true master plan is, and then he, he emerges in full in the epilogue, and that's only so cathartic because he's been hiding for this long, so that's that's great stuff. Yes, indeed. So that's going to wrap us up for A Clash of Kings Tyrion 12. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening, and thank you to those of you who have been watching our live cast. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean. If you're watching us on YouTube for these live streams, hit us a thumbs up and a like and a subscription. We really appreciate it. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf or follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf. You can shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or porkquentin.com. <laughs> and you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood Adventurer Isle, Septon Marybelt, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. 
Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quantum, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Smallpaw, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker of the End of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Carly, and our newest High Lord slash Lady, Starlight's Glimmer, did nothing wrong. So thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies, and thank you so much for joining us, a Starlight Glimmer. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you all every single month for all of your support, and welcome to Starlight Glimmer. Great name. I don't know what it means, but it sounds really, really fancy and cool. So, rock on. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings Tyrion 7 in which Catelyn Stark hits rock bottom. Oh, mom, I'm so sad for you. And confronts the final boss of her arc in a Clash of Kings, Sir Jamie of House Lannister. Much as I've loved all the previous Catelyn chapters in this book, it's the last and best one that really, I think, makes her my favorite POV in a Clash of Kings. So, I will just be gushing all over that chapter with you, sir. Can't wait. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to those of you who watched us. Thank you again to our patrons. And we'll see you all next week for A Clash of Kings, Catlin 7.